it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing. Amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today is the second episode of Rerun. So first one came out last Monday was 2016 Women's Marathon Olympic Trials. And today is the men's version. And in this episode, my co-host will be David Roach. David is one of the best trail runners in the country, also one of the best coaches in the country and coached a couple of people who actually were in this race. In addition to that, he is um, basically a prolific writer at this point. Not only does he have a very highly well-regarded book that he co-authored with his wife, Megan, but he also writes for Trail Runner Magazine. You can read him online on all things running, not just trail running. And it was a pleasure to have him on this episode, not only because of his coaching and running background, but as you'll hear, if you don't already know him, he's just an easy, fun guy to talk to. And we had a lot of fun talking about all things about this race and the circumstances around this race. So also we talk about what Kara Goucher had to say after the women's uh, marathon in regards to Alberto Salazar. And we touched on that in this episode, as opposed to the women's race, because though that topic at that moment was really directed towards the people who were running in the men's race. So we put, so we basically had a choice, talk about the women's race because Kara Goucher was the one who said it or talk about it in the men's race because in this race, because as you know, the women and the men ran at the same time and the broadcast was the same for both. It was basically Alberto Salazar was discussed in relation to Galen Rupp and the men's race. So we had a choice. We ended up doing it with the men's race. So that is why you'll hear it in this episode. And we also had a choice for this episode of whether to cover the shoes um, in both episodes or one of them. And we talk about uh, basically all things shoe related in this one as well. So... Without further ado, here is my episode, Rerun, with David Roach. Hello, David, and welcome back to the show, and welcome to this brand new venture we're doing, Rerun, and right now we'll be doing the 2016 Men's Olympic Trials in the Marathon. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. I've got my uh, my cool weather gear on so that I don't... I don't overheat um, with this new podcast format, so I'm excited. Well, overheating is definitely the name of the game in regards to this race, as well as the women's race, as we should say. You know, I've done another episode with Kerry Tollefson and Jen Rines where we touch on the women's race, um, which is inextricably linked to the men's race, if for no other reason than it happened at roughly the same exact time in the same place and was shown in the same way. So if people haven't listened to that episode, what we're doing here in this podcast is basically David and I have rewatched and for me a couple times now the uh, the Olympic trials and the marathon we're going to touch on all things related to this race and hopefully have a lot of fun doing it so first things first David before you turned on you know the YouTube link for this race what exactly if anything did you remember uh, from the first time that you had watched it or you know kind of read the coverage uh, back in 2016 yeah, so what I remember the most from coaching a couple of people there and the coverage was that it was very hot and Galen Rupp made some very interesting fashion choices um, by cutting up his jersey. So that was basically where I was coming at. And then I also remembered the women's side where, um, 
you know, Amy Craig and Shalane had such a, a great partnership going in the race. And that was super heartwarming. Um, but other than that, I remembered who was top three and did not remember anything about how it played out. And so, yeah, where were you at with it coming in? It's funny because I was in this, this bl- basically had like a blank space. You know, I was I was well aware of who the top three were, right? It was, you know, Galen, Meb, and Jared Ward. And I was sitting there like, I was trying to, you know, before I clicked the link, all right, what do I remember? Thinking that, like, I'm going to touch on this question when we, when I talk to David. And I'm like, I don't remember much. I just don't. And now I, and now I know why. It frankly wasn't that exciting of a race. I think it's exciting in retrospect because of a lot of things that happened, you know, in the time after this race and – frankly, what happened um, immediately after this race in regards to like the press conference and just some of the conversations that had happened at the finish line. We'll touch on what happened with Kara Goucher and her, and her interview, which was fascinating at the time and even more so now looking back in time. But now I don't, I don't feel bad necessarily now thinking back to like, hey, I don't have a great recollection of it. Obviously for me, and we'll touch on this when we do the little rundown, you know, the, 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 the big thing is basically what happens from miles 16 to 20 or so with Tyler making his move, Tyler Pinnell, what happens to the field? And then ultimately, you know, springing Galen um, to just kind of take it, you know, take, take the last two miles or so as a victory lap of sorts, you know, in his first marathon. And I think that was the, the big thing for me was looking at this race, even looking at like a lot of the preview articles that were written and the, the round table articles. And there was a lot of, a lot of content coming up before this race was that it basically came down to like, okay, Galen's the best runner in the field, but it's his first marathon, so who knows? Meb is old, and Dathan is a wild card, and Lord knows what's going to happen with the rest of the field. And it was like every single article I read about it, that was really the crux of all of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think knowing what we know now, it's really interesting how it played out and how the years since played out. And I think, I think we'll dig into that a little bit because like, I remember, so as I was watching it, um, you know, it was kind of like seeing it fresh in a lot of different ways. And I was struck by a couple things. One being how many times Alberto Salazar's name came up on the broadcast that I was watching. It was like, it was probably mentioned 25 times at least. Um, and you know, he's not in the race. So that was pretty interesting. Whereas like the Hanson, you know, coaching Hanson's coaching Lyndon were mentioned maybe like once or twice. Um, and you know, so clearly Rupp and Nike Oregon project was the (laughs) kind of the side that was hanging above the field, like the grim reaper. Um, and I think that that's probably part of why the race played out like it did is that, everyone was deferring so hard to Rupp and seeing what would happen with him. And that kind of formed the basis of the race. And based on reading some of the preview articles too, it seemed coming in like everyone, like the race was king off Rupp. That was what was going to be the deciding factor. And, you know, turned out to be, but it turned out to be that. And it was kind of uninteresting as a result, at least, you know, maybe in a, in a direct like drama of competition way. But as we know now, that is interesting for other reasons. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's let's dive into the beginning of this race. First of all, is you know we're having this this race. It's in LA, which you know was a great way to connect it to where the Olympics was going to be. So Olympics ended up being held in Rio, and it was a you know it was a very hot day. 
in LA, it was never, you're never quite sure how hot it was because <laughs> at some point in the broadcast, they say it's 70 degrees in the shade. And other times they're like, it's 71 degrees out on the street. And you're like, wait, which one is it? Like, I'm <laughs> not quite sure what the temperature is. It's obviously really warm. You saw people, you know, taking in a lot of fluids. But early on in the race, what you found was, first of all, no one was really taking the bull by the horns, which wasn't that big of a surprise, especially knowing how hot it was. And a couple people kind of cycled through the lead. You know, Galen really kind of you know laid back, laid back uh, within the first pack or so, but the pack was was frankly was enormous. And I think that something happened you know, with the broadcast team. So they're they're basically covering the men's race and the women's race at once, and they I think they conflated the two races in one respect. In the women's race. They were definitely you – know, the leaders were definitely taking it out easy and trying to conserve energy. I thought they did a really good job. And they were saying the same thing about the men's race. And you look back on it, and I don't think that's at all what was happening because they kept quoting the the paces even in the first 10 miles, David – and they're saying they're running 212 to 213 pace. So they're, you know, they're they're taking it easy. And I'm looking at it like, I don't think they're taking it easy, man. I think these guys are really pushing it. Did you notice that as well? Yeah, I mean, the top guys were not pushing it. So I think it gets a lot back to the conditions and it has some parallels to this year, you know, 2020, which is going to be in Atlanta. So leading up to this race in, in LA, you know, you never know what the weather is going to be like. It could have been a very delightful 55 and, you know, optimal running conditions. Um, but everyone knew at the back of their heads, maybe it'll be warm. Like there's a solid chance it's going to be warm. Um, what does that remind us of? That's like Atlanta this year where it could very well be 40 degrees or it could be 80 and humid. And it's going to be tough to know until you get to that week. So every runner had to prepare for a wide array of conditions. And so for the LA race, you know, everyone was preparing for heat, just like most likely they will be for Atlanta. So when they showed up at the start line, everyone is, is ready to go there. So what causes the fatigue in the heat when the heat is increased, when the fatigue is increased because of the heat, it's not necessarily the same things as usual. It's not like, oh, we're, we're, you know, looking at a certain percentage of lactate threshold right at the start, dialing an aerobic threshold. It's much more thinking about residual fatigue. What's, how is that heart rate drift going to happen late in the race in a way that might not happen in a day with good conditions? So I would actually say that at the start, they were under control only thing that made it not be under control is the fact that like their body was going to experience these central fatigue factors a little bit worse later in the race. So um, they probably felt so easy. And that's why the men's field was mostly together with all the, you know, I think it was 25 people or something at halfway, maybe more, um, or, or when Tyler Pennell made the move. But um, yeah, so in other words, and I think that this will be relevant for this year, it felt easy to them. Um, and it probably even was if you were measuring their phys physiology at the time, but it was a ticking time bomb for pretty much everyone in the field, um, which led to what happened later in the race, which, you know, which was, and I'll leave that to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You bring up a good point here because only three people negative split this race. Well, that's heat, you know, and um, as soon as that, well, there's two things that went into this course. One, the course was very strangely designed. So if people don't remember... Um, it went essentially through downtown LA. At one point, you're streaking through the quad of campus, um, you know, of, of USC. Um, there's tons of turns. It goes off like some off-camber off, cam off camber roads. It's 
not an easy course, even though the profile wasn't particularly hard, um, but that wears on you. And then two, that temperature, like it definitely causes every little bit to get exposed. So um, yeah, it was, in other words, that even though no one negative split, it was, um, it was, it would have been very hard for a lot of those athletes to negative split unless they had started out at a pace that totally left them out of contention, um, from the gun. So it's, it's one of those, those hot weather marathons are basically a damned if you do damned if you don't situation sometimes. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think you phrased it a lot better than I did. So, um, so you have the situation where they're, you're kind of trading the leaders. There's no real leader because it's just a huge pack of 20, you know, basically 20 to 30 people. You can kind of tell by the stats after the fact how many people were in the group. Um, on TV, it's a little harder to tell because they're kind of focused like, right at like the front of the teardrop. Um, but Tyler McCandless is, is, is kind of at the front for a while. Tim Ritchie's at the front for a bit. And then, you know, again, you, you kind of have this back and forth a little bit. People kind of moving around. And then at mile 16, that's where Tyler Pinnell makes his move and really kind of puts the pedal to the metal. And after the fact, you find out that he didn't actually like really step on the gas, but it was like just enough where it was like the the straw that broke the camel's back where like the rest of the field was just kind of like, all right, I'm out. Like this is, you know, that move timed with the heat depletion that you mentioned just seemed to just, just lose the entire field. At that point, and Tyler makes his move, and it really is like that. That is the race. I mean, that that is the paradigming shift moment of this race of what happened before, what happened after, and it was so interesting to think about it after the fact here because, again, like you mentioned, they probably went through half at a point where they weren't dying, but you see this move happen, and Tyler, I think, runs a four fifty mile at mile 16 again which is certainly faster than they that they were going but isn't really dropping the hammer but everyone just falls away and never come back yeah and pace changes off of an existing fast pace are exceedingly difficult that's why a lot of workouts focus on that like um you would even hear on the broadcast of them talking about you know a lot of people do alternator workouts and things like that where you go a little faster than the marathon a little slower mile to mile um, and part of the reason is that when you reach a kind of physiological equilibrium in that first half marathon, your body starts to work, it starts to settle in at a certain amount of aerobic threshold. And um, as soon as you start to tip that balance, either with a big acceleration or a big hill that you don't, you know, appropriately adjust effort on, um, it's amazing how you can immediately fall over the edge. Um, and I think most athletes know that intuitively from their training. So when 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 he did that, he was essentially saying, okay, all the chips are on the table. Um, and I think he probably knew that at the time. It's like, once you drop a 450 mile off that pace, which is fast, but not like, not world, it, it's not the type of thing that maybe on a, on a little bit cooler day would have destroyed everyone. But it's like, okay, throwing a grenade into the middle of this field, good luck. Yeah, exactly. And I should say it also destroyed Tyler because he ends up getting caught by both Jared Ward and Luke Pesquedra later on in the race. So he's in the lead for about a mile and then Galen and Meb catch him at mile 17 and move past. And then, you know, you count it basically that that's all she wrote in regards to those two. Pinnell starts to drop back. And then later, again, we said that there's three negative splits in the race. Jared Ward negative split this course by two seconds. And I think if if one thing was mentioned as much as 
Alberto Salazar's name. It was Jared Ward's like postgraduate work in regards to pacing <laughs> for a marathon. I mean, you know, there there are plenty of um, things where I'm sure the people who who broadcast this race wish wish they could have back again. You know, no, you know, ultimately, you know, when you're doing live TV, that's just the breaks, and there's no negativity attached to it. But one thing that they got 100 percent right was was talking about Jared Ward's ability to uh, pace himself in a marathon. He has almost a perfect split in this marathon catches Jared, you know, catches Tyler later on in the race. But ultimately at mile 18, you see um, Meb and, um, and Galen go 454 uh, at 18 and a half. That's where Tyler um, really falls off. Um, Meb takes the lead. They drop a 452 at mile 19. And then, you know, away we go. Uh, Ward takes third at mile 22 and I'm sorry, mile 21. And, you know, he, he, he's in third to stay and Galen takes the lead at mile 22 and just looks absolutely fantastic the rest of the way. And, you know, basically the last three to four miles was just a coronation for him as a marathoner. And let's just talk about Galen because there were, there were a lot of things, you know, this was a huge race for him. He ran exceedingly well, you know, and you take into account that it was his first marathon. I mean, holy cow. But I, there, there were a lot of interesting moments in regards to the Salazar stuff, and we'll touch on in, in a second. But I think the, the highlight for me in terms of unintentional comedy, and I think there's a lot of unintentional comedy in this broadcast, <laughs> I think without question, the biggest one was the, was the glamour shots of Galen lifting weights and then the broadcast team talking about how – they had to re- had to reel in Galen because he was just getting too strong and too big to be to be a high level marathoner. And you're, they're, sh- they're showing him in these enormous baggy basketball shorts, and he looks exactly the opposite of too big and too strong. And for me, that was maybe the highlight of the broadcast was hearing how Galen Rupp was at a point in his career just too big to run a marathon. <laughs> oh my gosh, so much with this was interesting. I so um, Matt. For, for listeners, Matt sent around a, uh, a little bit of an outline of like potential questions or like ideas. And one of them was what aged the worst? And to me, yes, the, the glamour lifting shots, that's pretty delightful. But the part that aged the worst was um, kind of the apocryphal workout that people had been whispering about before the race. Um, you know, I, I had heard it from some people behind the scenes of Galen Rupp running 20 miles before this, his longest run to that point, at 452 pace with a heart rate under 150 the entire time. Um, so why did that information get out there? Like that that's so yes, for 20 miles at 452 pace for one of the best marathoners in the world, not unheard of. Under 150 heart rate makes no sense physiologically um for almost anyone. And so um to me that aged the worst because I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes more sense now. Um so if that's true, that that is especially uh, you know, maybe it was right after an L carnitine injection or something like that. Or <laughs> in the combined with the fact where I think it was like we're we're ten minutes into the broadcast and the broadcast team goes and you know we're going to see a lot of Alberta Salazar today, and let me tell you, there's nothing that he won't do to increase the the <laughs> to increase the success percentage for his athletes. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, I think that part that was the line for me that aged the worst. It was like, 
It was like watching like an old Lance Armstrong video and being like, oh, this is the point where everyone was like, all right, it's over. It's definitely, you know, not we're not here on the up and up. And that whole part was like, as you mentioned, like the fact that that got out, it was almost so in retrospect, of course, and maybe for you, like in the moment, you know, and, and I didn't, didn't recall that that line at the time. But looking back on it now, you hear that and you're like, Again, we we don't know what we don't know in regards to this stuff. So I, on some level, I want to tread lightly, but on the, on another level, it's just so brazen to just like throw that <laughs> well, out there. Yeah, I mean, so what what what's so interesting to me about that is that like there's no reason to release his heart rate data or the information about that. So clearly, I mean, if that's true, it was an intimidation tactic because everyone knew in that race that it was Galen's, you know, like that, even though there was question about how well he would do at the marathon, since it was his first one, they said on the broadcast, he hadn't run farther than 20. Um, you know, if you're doing that at that heart rate, it's a foregone conclusion, how the race is going to go. And I think that that's especially what made Tower Pinnell's move so incredible is what a, uh, what a beast to decide at mile 16 that, okay, you have the ultimate buzzsaw here. Someone that, you know, even though he doesn't look like the Terminator when he's lifting weights is essentially the Terminator of the field. Like someone that can do that. It's it, 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 you don't even need to run the race. Honestly, it's done before it starts. Um, and he just goes and freaking, you know, takes it right to him and puts him, you know, like on his heels for a second. And to me that, that, was one of the more memorable moments of the race just because, um, you know, I'm sure he knew, I mean, it's, it, as, as we saw from the Kara Goucher interview at the end of the race, it's been a lightly held, you know, secret for a while now, like all the, all the runners in the field knew the rumors for many years. Um, and to do it in the face of that, that, that to me was so badass. And then when you think about Tyler's move, which was obviously incredibly bold, you know, I have to believe that it wasn't targeted for Galen or even Meb. I think it was probably just it was the rest of the guys, right? Like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna make this move, and I don't care what these other two dudes are gonna do. It's about everybody else, and can I put them in the hurt zone to the point where there there there's just no way for them to catch me? Because I'm trying, I'm thinking about it in terms of. You know, they basically on the the broadcast made a point of saying that he had done a similar move earlier in the year at um at another marathon. And I wrote it down, and then wouldn't you know it? Let's say Twin the Cities, maybe. Yeah, it was, I think it was Twin Cities or Chicago. And then you know they're saying like, all right, his coach had said, hey, at mile sixteen, that's when you can go. And then once you know it, he does it in this race as well. So it's like, okay, what's the what's the strategic benefit here of going you know ten miles out? Versus just, all right, if Galen and Meb aren't pushing it, why, you know, why not just kind of hang around with them? Why, why feel the need to make the move? Well, at, you know, it varies a lot, but rarely is there a such thing as a sit and kick in a marathon. Um, what looks like a sit and kick is usually just a lack of a fade. Um, so if you're going to make a move in the marathon, usually you need to go a little bit earlier. Um, obviously the game has changed because a lot of, a lot of like, historically might be considered the greatest marathoners ever likely had other assistants in their system that made their physiology slightly different. But so Pinnell went right when, um, you know, glycogen stores are starting to wear a little bit, probably the last moment you can, you can really muster, um, close to a hundred percent of, you know, your fitness without 
the residual fatigue taking over a little bit. So, um, I mean, I loved that move at the time because, I mean, it almost worked too. Um, you know, he, he held on for fifth and if it weren't for Jared Ward being a total boss and Luke Piscadrette crushing it too, um, it would have worked. And, um, my guess is in a year that wasn't as hot, he might've qualified for that team. So the, it gets back to the heat, heat issue. Most likely when he hit that heat, he, like he probably felt very good when he made the move, but when the heat hit, um, you know, maybe his heart rate was just three beats per minute higher than expected. Like it doesn't take much because you're right on the edge of glycogen depletion. Um, and as soon as you hit that, as soon as you hit that point, it's like, well, you're over it. And that all depends on relation to aerobic threshold. So that's the hard part about the heat is what you, what athletes, like if you take athletes into a lab, they'll self-report if they're guessing their heart rate, they'll guess lower numbers than their heart rate actually is. Um, and you know, that really came into play there, but man, that moved like watching it again to me, that's like, you know, maybe I think I'm a little bit, uh, (laughs) seduced by the stories of like, valiant charges and things like that so maybe maybe other people would disagree but to me that was um that was my big takeaway of like wow i want to live like that guy yeah no no one really says like you know what know what i want to do is put five percent in my ira every year for 40 years and then live the highest yeah, yeah, right yeah. you want to be you want to be the angel investor who hits it big and that's well, exactly how what- i put it all on black and just went, went for it um and you know I, I don't know what he would say now um about that because i know i imagine for all these athletes and for any athlete that competes in the olympic trials not just the people at the front there's a swirl of regrets and doubts and things because you can't prove the negative like what would have happened had he tried to wait and just sit um, and not fade, you know, what would happen then? But my guess is that the race was going to play out kind of like it was going to play out as we saw at the Olympics later where Jared Ward had, had a top finish, you know? Um, so, you know, he was one of the best runners in the world and Meb is Meb and Galen was Galen, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, so yeah, like, I <laughs> and mean, then, but you, but you bring up a good point because there's, if you think about it, like, all right, well, what if he, what if he doesn't make the move? What if he says, you know what, I'm just going to try to stick with my pace and see how far it takes me. It's hard. It's going to be hard to imagine someone kind of like outdoing Jared Ward at Jared Ward's game. Right. I mean, like maybe the, maybe, maybe the differential in time would have been different, but it's hard to imagine that he would have done like outdone Jared in the consistency department. Yeah, I mean it's really hard to know. I mean, Pennell has like he has a a snap that very few athletes in the world do. You, you know, looking at all the races that when he wins or, or crushes it, he does it in dramatic fashion, you know? Um and so maybe if things play out a little bit differently, he can do a version of the same thing at mile twenty-three. Um but you know, again, always hard to know. And and something for all the athletes listening, like your brain is always going to want to go to that situation even the winners do this as crazy as that sounds um go to the situation of oh well had i done this differently or made this different decision the brain also has a way of um smoothing over how hard something is and making it seem like more of a choice in retrospect so um yeah i mean it'd be interesting to ask him and, and see what he thinks but my take is that like you know that that team was probably decided at the start line like just given how how immensely strong all the, those top three were um but i the fact that he went for it and blew it up man definitely definitely added added some drama well one thing that 
never gets brought up in the entire broadcast, men or women. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's insane to think about now, but it's the next category, the Spike Lee category. It's all about the shoes. Shoes never get mentioned in the entire race. <laughs> and it's like, it's so funny now because it's all anyone wants to talk about on some level. I mean, that's obviously that's, you know, that's hyperbole. But with that being said, it wasn't this unbelievable parade of Miami Vice colors running down the, the streets of LA. It was like exactly what you would expect. And it's so funny, just you know, the absence of shoe talk was almost shocking to me in retrospect. Not that like I could think of any shoes in the moment, like, all right, they're gonna talk about XYZ models, but the fact that it didn't even come up at all was shocking. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think first of all, we find out later is that um, some of the some of the Nike runners in the field had kind of like early versions of uh, you know of those models, the Vaporflies, and it's hard to know what that even means because you know these companies you know can you know continuously upgrade, and even you know recently you look at what you know you look at what Parker Stinson's been wearing with Saucony, like they think they've gone through twenty seven versions. Of the endorphin series. So like, okay, well, they're wearing a test model. Again, who knows what that even means? So I'm not going to put too much stock into it just because, you know, it's just going to be guessing. But you look at that, I think for me, it's hard to make an obvious, um, an obvious conclusion because of the heat factor. Right. So I'm looking at the times, I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm like, but there's so many variables for this one race. I don't know how to scientifically go through them and take what to take out and what to leave in. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. Back then, everyone, like behind the scenes, people knew that these were out there, you know, which is makes it, I, I guess on the, the announcers are always like in a place where they might not be able to say everything they know. And I get that. Um, but I remember, I'm not sure. So I used to run for Nike back in the day and I'm not sure if it was 2015 or so, but at some point I ran and what I didn't realize was a prototype, just like put it on and ran on a sidewalk. Um, it wasn't sent to me. I was just somewhere that there were. And I had no idea what was going on, had never heard of the shoe, had never. And it felt like a freaking pogo stick, um, you know, which is like, this was probably a shoe that wasn't the 4%. It was probably like a 0.5%. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that hangs over everything of the last, you know, it hangs over everything much like EPO did in the old days. Not to say that it's a bad thing, just, like that that the shoes are a bad thing. Just say like, you know, who's doing it and who, or who has them and who doesn't really like clearly makes a difference because what, what shocks me about the vapor flies situation or the, the spring shoes situation, the Nike shoes situation is that there are no non-responders. So if you look at the data, there's no one that it's like, Oh, this doesn't help them at all. It helps everyone. It just helps some people a ton. And that's the part that's most interesting to me. It's not everyone is helped in a linear exact fashion, um, some people are major responders. And my guess is that a lot of the pros or s some at least have very specific prototypes to kind of optimize it for them. I don't know, um, necessarily. So you would think so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no reason not to have that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just make sure the spring is directly good for your form, you know, whatever that means. And my guess is it depends very heavily on biomechanics and things like that. Seeing some of the, the studies and data that they're doing, um, so yeah, the question is what what that meant in 2016 because the data from you know the biomechanics lab here at, at Colorado wasn't released yet. So yeah, I mean it's an interesting world. I don't think it made a huge difference in the men's race, probably, probably. But, but I mean, the women's clearly... race, the women's race, you could argue 
strongly, especially not with Amy, because Amy had an unbelievable race. And again, we, we have a women's um, episode that touches on this, but she could have run a much faster time than she ended up doing that. She would end up doing that day. She was really out there to help Shalane in the last few miles. Amy had an unbelievable race. And no matter what shoes she was wearing, she was going to win that race. I think we can confidently say in retrospect, but Shalane really was hurting near the end. You know, she had a, you know, an, an obvious, um, you know, hiccup in her, in her training. It did not have the training that she'd wanted. And, you know, people were, were on her heels and if she had lost a minute or so, it's a completely different field that's going to the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a hard issue because, like, I think it's easy to kind of talk a big game on this issue, you know, and very hard to know, like, the decisions that each person would make presented with it, like, presented with the options. You know, like, there's all these stories now of non-Nike athletes painting over their shoes to be able to wear, you know their their version um and you know i think it's it's not i don't even think it's a morally gray area i think it's just reality and um yeah so i mean it's super interesting when you think about like these people's livelihoods um not even not even this is like a drama a sports drama but this is like a human drama um and that's why like what i try to do on this issue not being an expert is listen as much as I can to the athletes that this affects, both Nike and non-Nike. Um, so I'm really curious to see where the conversation goes. Like, I'm not against it at all, um, but I can see that a lot of athletes feel a little bit like, you know, in a, in a, in a tough spot if they weren't in the place of, you know, having these options back then. And, and we don't even know how much they helped. Like, maybe this version of what became the Vaporfly wasn't even you know, that good, or maybe had, maybe it caused hotspots that made, you know what I mean? Like it's such a weird murky issue. Um, but not, I mean, not one without, without analogy in the running world. So yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to hear, like, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of people that have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah. And I think that the hard part is, is that, you know, they, they're all sponsored by, you know, they're all sponsored by other, by other companies who are working on the same stuff. (laughs) So it's like, you know, so you get in that situation of like, you can talk, you can talk crap about it, but then like, you're also probably working for a company or working with a company that's trying to do the exact same thing because it's currently within the rules. So why wouldn't you until yeah, the rules emphasis change? On, emphasis on trying. Right. Emphasis on trying. Exactly. I had a conversation with the, with the guys from Believe in the Run who do such great reviews on shoes and they're laughing. They're like, yeah, it turns out it's a lot harder to put a carbon plate in a shoe that people realize like these guys worked on it for a really long time. Oh, and they're so good at like, you know, say what you want, but the science is outstanding. Um, I mean, gosh, the alpha fly, the next version, the, <laughs> that takes it to another level. And I think we're, we're right now going to be at a tipping point where d- major decisions are going to have to be made. Um, and I think there's been some recent news. I'm not sure when this will come out, but um, that there might be, decisions to be made soon. Um, my guess, not knowing anything, total speculation here, this is not as a coach or expert or anything, is that they stop the evolution of these things at this first generation, um, like, or as much as they can, as much as that's physical as possible. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it'll be hard to regulate, but just because you could see a future when it really does become like, 
actual moon shoes you know like vaporflies and next in that in the other company's shoes are within the realm of reason essentially like you can you run in them and you're like oh it makes you faster a little bit it makes you more efficient but you're still running like it's not you could see a you know a technological advancement that pushes it um to a point that like you know every month or two there's a, a competitive imbalance um one way or the other but that being said, I'm so glad I don't have to <laughs> don't have to make those decisions. And this stuff's coming to trail running too, as crazy as that is. So um, it'll be it'll be an interesting five or ten years here. Well, you know, if you just look at sports in general, this is not a new problem. This is just a new problem for distance running. So you know what I mean? Like golf has golf dealt with this, you know, thirty years ago. You know, and they've gone through all aspects of trying to regulate this and are now at a point where they have very strict definitions of what's allowed, what's not allowed regards to like, you know, the clubs and the ball and you know, all the, the, all the companies are in line with that. And obviously you can test after the fact and all of this stuff, right? I mean, there, there are certain rules that they've established. I just think that running is going through their own process of getting to this point, but it's not like no one's ever like blazed this trail before. It's just new for this sport. Yeah. Well, it's super cool. And I, I don't know, I, I fortunately, um, and I guess it's a position of privilege that I'm not the one that has my livelihood staked on it, you know, where I'm not, but like, it's very, it's interesting. I could see a real, I could see this being a uh, Netflix documentary in 10 years. And with that said, you're like, what is the worst born to run? <laughs> like the idea that like yeah. the Nike free was going to be like the next generation shoe that like spurred everyone to greatness. It's like, oh, not quite. Yeah, uh, anyone that anyone that thinks we're born to run must wake up feeling much much fresher than I wake up feeling in heavy training. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, maybe it's just me. I think I'm born to eat Cheetos, but I think maybe other people are born to run. There you go. All right, so let's th- let's talk about some what ifs because there's a bunch. I think the first what if for me actually came from a uh, a miss a misspeak. On the, um, I think I think I'm, I'm misspeaking while describing the misspeak, which is classic Matt Chittum. But it was like I think it was a misspeak during the <laughs> broadcast where they, for, for about a minute straight, they're referring to Galen Rupp and continually calling him Ryan Hall. Oh gosh, that's awesome! And for me, that was like a great what if. It's like yes, I wish that's what was happening right now. And for me, it's this whole cadre of runners of roughly the same age that you know. 10 years, 15 years prior, we all viewed as like this group that's all going to get awesome together. And Meb was in that group. Abdi Amaraman was in that group. Adam Goucher's in that group. Ryan Hall is in that group. Dathan Ritzenheim and Alan Webb. And you look at this race and it's just like, they're just not there. Yeah. I love that. What if I'm going to steal your what if, because I think, um, you know, it's very fascinating. I think it's easy sometimes to emphasize the storylines at these races without necessarily thinking about what goes into the race itself to get to the point that they're able to do these things. And I think um, what it what it is, is the training, the levels of training at top marathon, um, at, you know, top marathon performance potential are pretty darn mind-blowing. Like, um, you know, getting to see some of the stuff behind the scenes with like, what it, what those what goes into those 140 mile weeks um you know like the the level of workout and the quantity of um work is not just a you know the type of fatigue that you build back from in one cycle it is fundamental central nervous system 
you know, it's calling on every ounce of your being from the cellular level to the systemic level to, you know, how your brain works and how your hormonal system works. So, you know, it's really hard to stay at the top for a long time, which is one reason why, you know, the gray area, morally questionable things that some groups might do become especially relevant. It's not necessarily, oh, you do this and you succeed, though there are drugs like that. What it's more like is, oh, you do this and then you can do this longer. Um, you can improve longer and keep developing um, maybe past like when might be expected at this level of training. So I think sometimes it's easy to forget that at the, at the very, very top level of pro road racing, especially marathons, um, <laughs> it's not really fun in games. Um, and it, you're playing with, you're truly playing with fire. And I think that that might be kind of what, what you're t- seeing when you're talking about that is just super hard to sustain it at the top level. Um, and you have to make sacrifices and yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see like where people go and it's why one reason why some, a- some of the athletes are so impressive because they're able to figure out with their coaches how to balance things in a way that's super sustainable long-term. Um, but no, also no judgment or no, um, you know, nothing against the athletes that burn really brightly and then burn out because that also is, you know, valiant in its own way. Yeah. And for me, the biggest what if that you described was, was Dathan, you know, we talked about a little bit about like the previews and it was all pretty much centered on, on the big three that included Dathan. You know, I think Jared Ward definitely got short shrift in regards to like the next tier. It was basically like him and like two dozen other people. And it was kind of like, yeah, it could be any one of these guys. Um, and then I usually, he usually was, you know, kind of at the forefront of a lot of the, the, of the coverage leading into the race in terms of like that second tier. But with that said, it was really a top three with Dathan being right there and, after the fact, he talked about, for him, it was just cramps. It was just a cramping issue. And as a coach, I'd love to hear from you about this because at this point in his career, Dathan is so experienced at this race, right? He has been running at a high level for a very long time. He's working with the best people in the sport. How does that happen to someone like that? Um, just as, you know, as someone who's never been anywhere close to that level in anything, where something that seems like it would ha- it could, you know, happen to the, even the slowest amateur runner happens to him on that stage. Oh, well, yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, getting now into the most speculative things since I don't know anything, but knowing his background a little bit and his PRs being so fast at short distances, um, you know, we start to, when you're at this level, they're all run, pushing up against their genetic performance potential. And what genet- what talent means, quote unquote talent, it's not this like easily definable thing. Every single genetic marker has like a, a ceiling in an optimal place most likely for each person. So yeah, there's VO2 max and this, uh, these more obvious things. But then there's also things like, my guess, like, um, you know, there's, my wife, Megan, works for a company called Action that measures genetic predisposition to things like bone injuries. So that's a genetic factor, you know, and Dathan has had a number of stress fractures. That's not necessarily his training or his shoes. That might just be his, like, his genetic code, um, as weird as that is. And, you know, they can measure that now and tell you what your likelihood is of dealing with low bone mineral density. Um, or it could be, like, my guess with him is if he did a muscle biopsy, he has a slightly you know, intermediate muscle fiber predisposition as opposed to pure slow twitch, which might be why the marathon has been slightly less 
advantageous to him than other people. And those types of athletes cramp at a higher rate than pure, pure slow twitch athletes. Like usually you'll meet a pure slow twitch athlete and they'll be like, I've never cramped in my life. How do you cramp? Like they could never do anything to cramp. And then if you get like someone that might've been a sprinter when they were younger or something, and then they become a distance runner, they'll cramp on like, you know, 10 mile trail runs. And then we have like a spectrum there and also cramping another genetic marker they have for that. So um, it's so weird when you start to get into the nitty gritty and then you combine that with the heat. And so, um, you know, this race was pretty warm, but there's extreme heat um, races, something like in trail running, the Western States 100, where every, a cold year is 92 degrees and a hot year is 108, you know? Um, And like everyone responds to that differently. It's not just the training. And so I, I think one thing that might be super relevant here for athletes that might be listening to this and going to Atlanta is something I tell to everyone that I coach for these exceedingly hot races is be prepared for the warmest possible temperature on the date. Like don't hope that the weather is good. Hope that the weather or hope and prepare as if the weather will be, you know, one of the like high, like normal extremes. So like, you know, in Atlanta, whatever, 80 degrees or whatever. Um, one, there's no downside to it because for the most part, because you build blood volume by doing things like the sauna and, and some of that. And two, it'll just make it so that you're not checking the weather forecast 18,000 times in the last, you know, looking at the 100-day long-range forecast and giving yourself ulcers or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, another it's just so hard because so much of this stuff is not how hard you work or how hard you want it. It gets back to fundamental genetic questions that we might not even know the answers to yet. And so what's the, to me, the moral of that story is to cut yourself as much slack as possible and do what you can. Um, but then looking at someone like the, the pro athletes, it's also to cut them slack because like for the men, it can be things like fast twitch muscle predisposition. For the women, you know, hormonal fluctuations can cause massive performance shifts and some of that's out of the control, out of control. Too. I mean, it's all out of control too. So um, yeah, it's, it's always hard because you never know what this athlete's going through and no one makes excuses really. So my guess is he would have had an excuse if you had asked him. All right. So let's dive into the biggest what the moment <laughs> of this race. I want to hear yours first because I definitely have mine, but it actually happens after the race. Oh, um, well, mine's, we've already gone over mine. Mine's Tyler's move. Um, and so I want to hear yours. Let's go over yours. All right. So mine is definitely after the race, they have the, the top three uh, men and women are having their press conference after the fact. And Meb is on stage with, I think it's Amy and Des. I, in, in the video I was watching, I, it wasn't a full field shot of the press conference stage. It was kind of a narrow focus on who was speaking. But so Meb is there and he's, you know, he's, you know, in, in wonderful spirits as he should be. He just ran a great race. He's going back to the Olympics. You know, he's, he's basically a master's runner and he's, you know, it's so, you know, excited about the whole, you know, the whole scenario and everything that unfolded. So they ask him about this like very, very light skirmish. You really can't even notice it on the broadcast, but I guess him and Galen, got a little close and Meb was kind of gesturing towards Galen and talking to him about it. And, you know, so he's, he's in this press conference talking about how like, yeah, like, yeah, he was, he was all up on me and I'm telling him like, it's not the track, get off me and, and all of this stuff. And he's being, he's being 
unbelievably blunt and frank about his complete disdain for what had happened, which is so funny because, like, these guys literally ran away with the race. But he's talking and he's being so open about it. And then as he's in the middle of discussing this, this is when Galen comes out from behind, like, the, <laughs> the, the, like the, the press conference shield and sits down next to Galen. And everybody there starts giggling this, like, nervous laughter because, like, this is not a sport where you see, like – overt trash talk especially like face to face so the journalists are laughing the women are on the stage are giggling like oh my god i can't believe but everyone but meb because meb doesn't realize that galen has just sat down <laughs> next to him because he's so intent on telling the story so galen's sitting there and i saw some 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 commentary after the fact and people were saying that Galen obviously didn't understand what Meb was saying. Cause he's just sitting there silently kind of like looking towards the back of the room. And I got the exact opposite picture. I got this feeling of like, here's a guy who heard what was being said, came down and sat down. It was a pure intimidation move. And like, I didn't get the feeling that he was looking like just like vacantly to the back of the room. It had this look to me like I'm sitting down cause I want to put a stop to this and I can't wait to counter to what he is saying and it was like the craziest moment if for no other reason than it felt like an mma press conference not like the u.s marathon olympic trials press conference <laughs> i think galen should have uh gotten out some of those big heavy weights and just been weightlifting behind meb as meb speaks just like getting jacked exactly. and like exactly like did you not see the b-roll did you not see the B-roll yeah, during exactly. the race? I used to be huge. You don't mess with a guy that can bench press 100 pounds. That's just fundamental truth of professional distance running. Um, if you can bench press three digits, no, you're, you got it. You're done. You can, you can beat anyone. Um, but yeah, it's so funny. So you think, do you, you think there's some bad blood there? I thought it was hysterical in the fact that like there was obviously bad blood because one of the journalists even asked Meb like, do you think you guys can get over this and be teammates at the Olympics? And it wasn't like this resounding like, of course. It was like, ah, hmm, I think so. <laughs> like it was like yeah. the most tepid response I'd ever heard from people who like were like they were teammates at this point. Like it was over. And they obviously you know, knew each other very, very well. And, you know, he was basically not trying to cover that up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's actually an interesting point too, from a broader scale, like you don't get to that level of things without being a pretty vicious competitor. And you know, Med's the most delightful human that's ever lived, but I guarantee in that race, he is a, you know, a killer in a good way, you know, like you kind of have to be, which is like, obviously I'm, I push all this like lovey-dovey stuff, but I also say to athletes, like when you get to the start line, I want you to be a killer. Like you have to be, if you're like, especially someone that's trying to win a world championship or something, because you know, you have to want it. And that means you have to want to beat people. Like you can't just want them to be successful. Um, as crazy as that sounds. Um, so it's about like, you know, Meb clearly is able to separate like the race from outside the race because he's known as like the greatest human ever for good reason. Um, but it's interesting to see it come out because they had an in-race moment that then bled out. And then I'm sure there's also, you know, everyone at, you know, knows what's going on within different camps. I mean, one of the funny things about professional running in general is it's a small world and everyone knows everything about everyone, basically. Um, so there's probably a ton of storylines that I have no idea about that go much deeper than um, even what's been reported recently, you know? Um, 
it's kind of fun. Like I wish there was a uh, like a Desperate Housewives of you know Boulder or Mammoth Mammoth Village or something or Portland. Yeah, it would be like, hey, what's going on? Everyone's napping. That's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. So, but who's napping with who? That's the question. Oh, there it is. <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah. We could. The, the most important moment of the race, I think we can all agree, it was Tyler's surge at mile sixteen that changed the race and basically upended you know, the entire field's chance to get into the, at least the top two. Um, what was your favorite moment of the race? My favorite, my personal favorite was a little selfish was Tyler McCandless at the front um, and pushing the pace like five steps in front of the field, just because I really like Tyler. Um, and he's such, he's like the, he's such a kind, hard worker who has gotten where he's gotten through so much grit and toughness over many years. And as I'm sure everyone has, but just like, you know, knowing him a little bit and seeing that it's like, um, you know, for him to do that, I think it's the ultimate, like, you know, pushing all of us to try to chase our potential moment. Um, so that was my favorite, like non-competitive, just a cool moment of reflection on someone's journey. Like if you followed him from his days at Penn state to now, it's like, he has, you know, put himself out there over and over and over again and gotten here through, you know, through hard work and toughness and, and all this other stuff that we can all use in our own lives. So that was my lovey-dovey favorite moment. All right. For me, it was, it was, it was Meb coming down the finishing quarter mile. It was like the, like the ultimate I am the people's champ moment. Like if you had just watched that, you'd be like, oh, that guy won the race, right? Because it was like he was basking in the glory. He looked fresh as a daisy. The whole thing was remarkable in light of like, you know, you heard over and over again that these guys are dying on their feet out there. I mean, he, Galen ran away from him. And you have to assume that he was trying as hard as he could to not let that happen. But in the last quarter of a mile, he looked awesome. He's like running. He's like waving to the crowd. He's like just so effervescent. It was amazing to witness on TV. And I got like so swept up and I must have seen this race three or four times in the last month and a half. And each time it like boggles my mind how much he's able to like go back and forth with the fans in that moment. And just even witnessing it on TV, it feels like you're there in person because it's just so like, it's just so electric. His, his, his whole demeanor and the gravity around his personality. At 40 years old too, um, which it's just, it's amazing. I also love like a fun wrinkle for those that didn't see, don't remember it. He, uh, it, this race went through USC's campus and he wore UCLA colors for the, through the race, his alma mater intentionally. Just, I, I love that like little bit of trolling mixed in with like being the best person in the world that everyone loves. Um, to me, it like adds even more, uh, more amazingness to his story. So yeah, I love that one. I feel like, you know, his, his perseverance over so many years and cycles is a testament to like him as a person and all that. So that's a, it's a, it's a darn good one. I like it. All right. Last one. Harbingers of things to come. So there's a lot of things here. Uh, I would say this is where I, I'd love to talk about the interview that Kara Goucher did after she finished the women's race. We're going to talk, we're going to talk about that here, not in the women's podcast because she basically did the, the justice is coming um, interview and I shouldn't even call it an interview. It was basically three minutes of Kara saying as much as she possibly could about what was happening behind the scenes regarding you know her testimony, 
to you know to various agencies about what was happening while she was at Nike, and and we've you know we've all heard a lot about what you know has happened in the interim. With that said, what happened in that in that conversation with the interviewer? And just the power and the emotion that she shared, it was directed at one man and it was directed at Alberto Salazar. And he was referenced constantly in this race, you know, in regards to the men's field. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. And it was, you know, watching it after the fact, again, this wasn't on the live feed. You have to kind of go through, I think FlowTrack had it on their site, you know, in their archives and watching it after the fact, I was just struck since first of all, so many things like, the obvious, like, it just seemed like this well of information that she couldn't wait to get out. And I was just struck that she was even able to complete a marathon at a high level. Never mind that race in those conditions on that stage, bouncing back from all the things she'd bounced back from and holding that in the whole time. I was just amazed that she was able to run at that run at that pace. And say all of those things. And I think that in the moment, like you said, there was always these whispers. I wasn't in that community. And when I look back now and I and to hear what she said, the, uh, the mind-boggling thing to me is, is the time it took after that interview for things to actually really go public. And, you know, it felt like it should have happened like three months later. It did not. It happened years later. Yeah, I, I what a remarkable person she is, and so much respect for her. And you know, she's been living with this burden for a long time. And we all have those things, right, in our lives that you have a have an option of action or inaction, and it's so tempting to take an action. Um, I mean, I know I have in non-running things in my life where I'm like, you know, that's the the old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's not my problem field, which makes things invisible. Um, like that's, I think the temptation at your work in, you know, for issues like this and she did the opposite and her and Magnus and, and others, you know, and you, USADA and, and everyone that fought, like it means so much, um, to the, the whole community. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's the moment of reckoning that has needed to happen and will need to continue to happen. Um, and I mean, just so much respect for someone that is willing to like put themselves out there in a way that isn't personally beneficial too. like Kara got nothing from doing what she's doing and what she's done. Um, right. Like it's almost purely negative because there's some people that don't like her because of it. And there's no one that, I mean, she's already like people that like her, like her. So, I mean, yeah, to me seeing that, you know, I, I didn't didn't see it on the broadcast, so I went and back and watched it after you mentioned it in an email. And I mean, it brought that brought more chills to me than anything in a race because I'm like that that's character, and that's what I hope to that's what I hope to take away from this whole whole moment in professional running is is trying to apply that same like you know willingness to stick up for what's right and what and for people that might be taken advantage of, and try to do my best not to contribute to negative things. Like in all, you know what I mean? As a coach, just like to continue to try to push that conversation. So I don't know. I mean, like what else did you, what were you thinking about it? Like it, I don't know. Like I'm almost, you know, for at a loss for words, because to me that goes so far beyond running. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And this, this whole idea of like Alberto Salazar was mentioned more during this race than Jared Ward was. 
Oh, by far, yeah. You know, he was he was a prominent figure in this broadcast, even though he was never seen, besides like B roll of you know, people going up to Oregon. So, you know, this that that feeling and then just the way she called out she she even called out Galen, you know, because she said, Oh, did Galen win? Yeah, I don't know. I I have, I don't have no idea. And then that's when she like let it rip. When you know, after after that like semi, you know, semi head nod, shade thrown at Galen, and then she just let it rip. And, you know, for me, what is it, you know, looking at Harbinger moving forward, it's, you know, it was the underground story going into 2016. And it's absolutely, you know, out in the open for 2020 for both the men's and the women's race with some of the best people. You know, you look at Jordan Hesse and Galen Rupp going into this race, both kind of in a similar similar situation where, you know, they're not at their best. They're both coming back from less than ideal training and racing. And, you know, what's it going to mean? And I think that also touches on a harbinger of things to come in terms of, you know, this race in Atlanta feels like in a lot of ways very similar to the lead up we had for 2016 in terms of there's a few people right at the top who are definitely going to be viewed as the strong favorites. And then there's about a dozen to two dozen people who you say, hey, one of these people will probably sneak into the top three because things are never perfect in terms of predictions. And Lord knows who is who's this going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I like I don't know. Galen Rupp or Jordan Hesse personally, but I also have a lot of compassion. Like, I feel like we should all have a lot of compassion for them as individuals, as long as like, there's nothing I don't know about. Again, I don't know just because these issues are so complicated. And especially when so much of identity and background and power structure, and also what you're being told versus what might be happening, it's so complicated. And, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of victims in this situation and it's not, it's all, it's a little tough to know, like not knowing the details who, you know what I mean? So I, I, as weird as it is, like I'm rooting for Jordan Hesse, like I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for Galen Rupp if he's clean to, to be there and be present and like go for it too. Um, just because like, you know, this is a, it's a terrible situation and Kara, like, it's so fun to see her crushing the trails now because um, you know, we, I actually got to see her run at the North Face 50K this this past week or this past a couple months, month and a half ago. Um, and she was bringing so much joy to everyone on the course and was so like um, happy in in the moment and just was giving it giving that joy to others. And so um, to me, that was like an ultimate bow on this on this story, at least as like in my little world, because I'm like, you know, it, it does show that that compassion that she had won in the end. Um, but with the awkward transition to 2020 for me, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be, I think it gets bound a lot to the course. Um, so the course isn't quite as hilly as initially, uh, initially planned, essentially the first course that was brought, but it's still pretty darn hilly. Um, and I think it'll get down to a lot of who does that suit? Who do the downhills take slightly more out of than others? Um, so fitness will matter, but what might be more interesting is how individual physiologies respond to that specific stress. So yeah, I'd look for the people that have run fast times at Boston, fast times at CIM or other races like that. And, you know, maybe I think we could see a Jim Walmsley or, you know, some dark horse that might 
truly excel in these conditions in a somewhat slower race than maybe if it was at, you know, in a, in a flatter course. Like, I think it's going to be a fascinating year. I think this, I think we'll look back on 2020 and be like, that was one of the better races we've seen in a long time. Yeah. And I love the fact that, you know, they shifted, they basically made it a gold standard race where, you know, when they initially announced how the Olympic team was going to be drawn, it was, you know, this idea of like, okay, if you don't have the standard, if you don't have 211.30, then, you know, too bad. You're not going to the Olympics, even if you're top three. And it was like, oh my goodness, like, I feel bad for anyone who's on the outside looking in on that number, but like, that's going to make the trials amazing because people are going to be like, just going on kamikaze missions. Like it'll be look like it will look like like the last mountain stage of the Tour de France. Like everyone's gonna be like, all right, it's now or never. I'm just gonna go. And you know, if I blow up, I blow up. It doesn't it, you know, it doesn't matter because I know if I don't do this, it's all for naught anyway. So I think you know, it's gonna be so interesting to see if who, if anybody, will make the the Tyler move that we saw in 2016, or if it's just a matter of, you know, playing it close to the vest, you know, playing it, you know, with that large group for as long as possible, if you're kind of in that tier two group, or if you're the Jared Wards, Galen Rupps, Scott Fobbles of the world, Leonard Career, do you say, you know what, I'm not going to let these people hang around. I need to just, I need to establish myself as the front runner and, you know, and just you know, live that life. Yeah. I'm so glad that they made it the, you know, the gold, gold standard race so that people can get in no matter the time. Because I mean, you, we talked a lot about skirting around these issues of gray area and doping and, and that sort of thing. As soon as we start focusing on numbers as like the arbiter of, you know, there's a re the reason cyclists are such, you know, doping is rewarded so much is that you are a number, you are your Watts per kilogram. You are what the power that you put into the bike What's so cool about running and especially this Atlanta course, it's going to be so much more of a human drama of like who makes the move when and things like that. If you put the number out there, it would have been, it would have incentivized decisions that might not be healthy. Plus it would have made it way less interesting. So yes, I think it's going that's to be a good awesome. point. See, that's the thing. See, I think it would have been more interesting during the race because I was, I was having a conversation with Parker since and after the, after that first announcement. And I was like, does this mean you're going to try to break away at mile two? <laughs> it's like that's what i mentioned like people like going out like at, again like mile six it's like i'm going now well i think i mean maybe this is like too jaded of me but i think what it it would probably incentivize people to do the same gray area stuff in you know in the build to get to the point that a two eleven thirty is impossible is possible on a very hard course you know so like assuming that that's equivalent of like a two oh seven thirty or something um given the course you know um, so maybe, maybe that's just too jaded of me, um, where I'm like, well, if you set this time, if you set this carrot out there that must be reached and we all know you're only going to reach that if you're at this level and we all know what other people that have gotten to this level, what many of them have done, then you're going to start to see people make, take shortcuts without even realizing they're, they're, they're falling down that path, you know, kind of the slippery slope of it. Um, but Needless to say, I am very happy that we're we're going to get a, a real race where, you know, people are just going for it with what they got on the day. And if the race is one and two thirteen or something, which is totally a possibility, um, you know, it'll be fireworks to the end. Um, rather than like, it would have had to be a time trial essentially. Granted, a lot more people have the standard now, so it's a little different. But um, you know, for someone like that, 
So I'm super pumped. I mean, um, I think there's a lot of really interesting through lines coming into 2020 and it's going to be freaking awesome. And then there's also all the people that might not be getting an Olympic punching a card to the Olympics, but are going for, you know, their own personal Olympics, which is the, the trials. And that to me is even more exciting. And I love that you're highlighting those stories. No, I think that that's, that that's fantastic. I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think the other piece will be interesting to see is, you know, when you have this date, so it's, you know, February 29th, which is far later than when 2016 was run, which was basically mid, was it mid January? Or no, it was, it was not far earlier, but a little bit, a little bit later this year is the, uh, with Boston just hanging out there because you have this situation, right? Where like, all right, if things aren't going well, or if someone's like just, you know, not quite up to it that week, you also have like, all right, there's, there's, there's do I want to be a potential Boston Marathon winner or the, the best American at Boston? Knowing that, you know, if someone's top three at the Olympic trials, they're not going to be running Boston. And you have that kind of lingering out there for a lot of runners who are like, hey, like this presents an interesting decision tree for me, whatever that, whatever the options are. Well, as a, you know, I feel like I, I was recently on, for those that didn't listen, I was recently on Matt Matt's podcast and mentioned Peter Bromka again. I'm really on a Peter Bromka roll, but as he says, you know, burn, you got to burn the boats. Um, you can't have that alternate option um, to really like go for it in anything in life, I imagine. So um, my, my advice to the athletes I coach there, even, you know, the athletes I coach there aren't going for the Olympics, but they are going for maybe on a perfect day though, you know, who knows where they'll slip in, in the, in the rankings, um, is, you know, we'll be smart, but once we, once we get there and we realize this is happening, burn the boats. Like this is like, let's make sure there's no regrets on this one day. Um, so you know, I think it will be a really interesting balance. And I also think that there's people like Desi, Des and Sarah Hall that has been racing a ton. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the idea on doing two marathons a year might be shifting at least for some of the athletes too. So yeah, I mean, gosh, we're, we're at such an interesting point of training theory and U S marathoning reaching such a stellar level at the top, um, that, I bet I bet something crazy is going to happen this year. Something that no one sees coming, um, and, ex- and the, except the people that do will feel like you know oracles and geniuses. Um, but I'm not the person that's going to be able to guess that. That's interesting. So you should you should just make seven like outlandish guesses and just be like, yeah, oh, yeah. one of them came through. Mm. So I obviously knew the future. Oh, that I think that's where it's at. What we needed to do is record like multiple podcasts, and including one that's like an asteroid hit right at the start of the race. It was really unfortunate. And um, then, you know, kind of like the, I think the Simpsons has done that where they have like 18,000, uh, you know, different, different storylines, but. Or yeah, like I mean, the Atlanta I, track club elite has practiced every tangent for the last four years. And they run like a minute faster than everybody. Cause they actually ran like 26.2 miles on the dot instead of an extra, like <laughs> two tenths of a mile. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I really think the course is the X factor. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Hey, like, I, I mean, I, I keep coming back to, to as a trail focused person to a certain extent. Um, you know, even though I coach a number of athletes there, I'm really curious to see how, you know, Jim Wamsley does coming into this race. Like just because 
he's he seems like he's going for it in a certain way or is he you know and like he's so interesting and it's just it um and then there's also you know Fobo, Fobo and all these other guys career and they're all coming in with the ability to win the race on any given day there's no Galen or there's no Galen Rupp in 2016 this year that everyone is going to defer to um and that will change that will change the race entirely the reason that we're saying 2016 was quote-unquote uninteresting is just because everyone knew who was going to win um as weird as that sounds like it was i i bet you know if you had pulled the racers and their lives dependent on it every single one of them would have picked galen um and we don't have that in this every year. in every article that we both read picked galen Oh yeah, I mean, it would have been, it would have taken major cojones to not do that uh, when someone is doing 452 pace at under 150 heart rate. Um, I think I'm above 150 heart rate just doing. This I heard podcast. he was going backwards for that run, actually. Oh yeah, moonwalking. I mean, you, know, you got to add a degree of difficulty somehow. Yeah, you just you want you want to you know you want to get the quads ready. Yeah, seriously. So I think that's interesting. I think the shoes will be really interesting. Um, not knowing how good the other companies' prototypes are going to be. Um, since every company is probably going to have new, possibly non-market versions, as weird as that is, um, including the ones that already have shoes that might work. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the Alpha Flies are out there, the the new Nike shoe. I think it, it's <laughs> for for running people that like running. Um, you know, it's going to be the U.S. running Super Bowl um, for road running, at least, and. You know, I'll have my big chips and dip thing, and <laughs> there, watching, watching, and hoping, hoping for the best. There you go, David. Thank you so much for joining me. This was fun. You're so awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening. David, thank you so much for coming on. As always, such fun times talking with David, no matter the topic, but especially something like this. I had a lot of fun doing this. So if you have any recommendations for future episodes of Rerun, not only races that we can cover, but co-hosts to do it with. It would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I've had a couple people reach out with guest suggestions. Obviously, the first two episodes, we didn't talk with any of the runners in the race. And that was by choice. I just wasn't sure if people would be into it. I thought maybe getting um, you know commentators to do uh, the commentating in this case would be a better fit. Um, but again, I'm open to all ideas and suggestions. Um, some other races that I would love to do uh, are kind of in the works, and hopefully we can make this a monthly feature going forward. Big ups to TuneUp CBD and Prevenex for sponsoring this episode. I love those guys. I use them every single day, and you can save using my codes as you know you already heard the uh the ads and they're already in the um podcast uh show notes as well listen i wouldn't allow any sponsors in this podcast if i didn't believe in them wholeheartedly and that's exactly how i feel about prevenex and tune up cbd so go check them out have a great day and happy running this has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.